Looking for your next audio binge? Bridge Burner is an independent podcast collective with all types of shows guaranteed to bring you hours of enjoyment. Podcasts like Reenacted, an Unsolved Mysteries podcast. On Reenacted, hosts Robert and Crystal watch and discuss the classic episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. They don't take themselves or the program seriously. They're just a couple of dummies who love Unsolved Mysteries. Or try Piloting Error, a crash course in abandoned media. Hosts Joe and Stu and guests walk scene by scene through television pilots that were aired but never picked up for series. It's time capsule of the bizarre. Maybe you'll enjoy Bill and Rob's An Excellent Adventure, where hosts Bill and Rob find the joy in watching a lackluster series of films like Predator or pre-MCU Marvel films. Hey, you could even check out The Bachelor Masters, a non-corporate show about the Bachelor franchise. What does the Bachelor series say about society? This podcast will let you know. If these shows sound fun, then you'll definitely enjoy Pumpkin Spice Podcast, a seasonal treat where comedy and horror movies meet all year long. But wait, there's more. Bridgeburner also has access to two Mike Sachs exclusives, Randy, the full and complete audio memoir of The Amazing Life and Times of Randy S., and Passing on the Right, both hilarious pieces of audio fiction created by the award-winning writer Mike Sachs. If you have a podcast that you think would fit with the Bridgeburner Collective, reach out to any of these shows, and they'll let you know how to join. Remember, five stars are our favorite, we love reviews, and also, share every single one of these podcasts in your group chat. It's Bridgeburner, and you can see more at bridgeburner.page. Welcome to Pumpkin Spice Podcast, where we're traveling across the country, nay, the globe, to dissect, examine, watch some of the best horror movies that are out there and beyond. So I'm Rob Schulte and I'm with Graham Young. Hi, Graham. Hey, how's it going? Uh, terrific. I'm having a terrific year. <laughs> Are you having a terrific time living in the desert after watching our featured film today? <laughs> Let me tell you, uh, a lot of Joshua trees in this film. There's a lot of Joshua trees in my neighborhood. And so oh, wow. it was a bit spooky here and there. But luckily, I could uh, separate myself from the film because they're in Arizona. They're all those weirdos in Arizona. and I'm, Yeah, that's not us. That's, that's not, me. not me. No, of course not. Um, maybe the same ecosystem, biodome, uh, but no. Uh, it was, you know, like any movie we watch, the setting is a character. And, you know, when watching White of the Eye, it was uh, fun to see a horror movie in the desert. There's you know, call me ignorant, but it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of movies in the desert, horror movies in the desert. Yeah, that being said, um, I can't think of really any aside from this one. Um, all, all I can off the think top of, of my head, of yeah. course, we'll think about this. Uh, well, once I tried the to make over. I, I tried before recording, just to be clear, like what 
could I pull to put in there? And then there's like uh, Tremors, right? Okay, yeah. It's That's a monster a movie. It's a monster movie. Um, what's the, wasn't there like a Wes Craven desert movie that was before Nightmare on Elm Street? The Hills Have Eyes. The Hills Have Eyes, yes. Which I haven't thought about in a long time, and I haven't seen since I think I was in high school. It's an intense one, that's for sure. (laughs) We'll just put it that way. Okay, but before we proceed on, what exactly is this film about? Graham, I'm glad you asked. I've pulled up the description on Letterboxd, and, uh, well, why don't I just read it? No woman is safe while he is loose. In a wealthy and isolated desert community, a sound expert is targeted as the prime suspect of a series of brutal murders of local suburban housewives who were attacked and mutilated in their homes. As he desperately tries to prove his innocence, his wife starts to uncover startling truths. And boy, does she when she goes to take a bath. Anyway, oh on yeah, with this show. Well, you know, I think most people know Kathy Moriarty for Raging Bull, mm-hmm. um, which uh, she was nominated for an Oscar for. Um, if if that wasn't enough for you, and you're looking for the next great Kathy Moriarty flick, don't stop, don't rest on White of the Eye, because I think uh, it's one of her best best movies. Totally, this. It's a very unique horror film. I am surprised I had never heard it. Well, I'm not surprised I'd never heard of it because looking at the director, Donald Camel, and if I'm mispronouncing that, uh, let me know in the form of a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, everyone. <laughs> Here's the first thing. Like, we can talk about the film in a moment, like the story, Graham, but like this guy pretty much only directed music videos. Yes. Um, this horror movie, there's a couple of other things like Demon Seed, which I'm ashamed that I haven't seen. I've never seen it either. Maybe we've got a bus ticket to it coming down uh, the line. Yeah, we'll have to get a plane ticket for that one because I uh, think that's in London. True. Um, performance I have seen. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I really, really enjoy that movie. Um, and it's one of those things where you watch performance or free Jack and you say to yourself, man, Mick Jagger should have been in more movies. Yeah. But free Jack is not the best movie in the world, but Mick Jagger is great in it. Mick Jagger apparently has some sort of, uh, quality about him. You know, Graham, I used to work with Rob Lowe and, uh, he had one interview on his podcast where, he talked about having dinner at a table with, and Mick Jagger was one of the people at this table. And uh, apparently Mick Jagger is quite mesmerizing. Interesting. It just that the white of his eye apparently was captivating. Well, you know, the Stones were in Austin maybe a year and a half ago. I'm trying to think it was like right after COVID or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mick had uh, taken pictures of himself all around Austin, just kind of hanging out. And he looked cooler 
uh, than most 19 year olds. Um, there is this sort of thing about him where he's always going to be the coolest guy unless Keith's in the room and then they share it. Fair. Wait, is Mick Jagger a Scientologist? I don't know. I, I want to say no. Because, you know, there's something, there might be something. There's a little Tom Cruisey about him. Yeah, yeah. There's a little Tom uh, Cruisey about him. Well, whatever he's having, I'll have some. That's all I'm uh, saying. I wanted to talk, since we're talking about music. Sure. Um, I wanted to talk about the music in the movie just real quick. Yes. But, like, I know that you said that this film was very unique. And, you know, don't worry, you're not going to hurt my feelings or anything. But did you like the film? Did you enjoy the film? Yes. I okay. Did. Because it can be, it can kind of be polarizing for people. Totally. Um, Especially, it's a slow horror movie. It's a slow and, burn. And there's, regardless of anything else in this movie that can be polarizing, I think slow burn films are like top of that like list well if you can get through this then can you get through this and then can you get through this and then you know so but yes i did like it okay cool well we talk about you know how the film is a slow burn and one of the coolest aspects of the film along with the scenery the beautiful locations that they filmed in in arizona is this sort of psychedelic rock uh, soundtrack mm. uh, that plays and I was kind of interested because like I always liked the soundtrack but I never knew who did it yeah and it's uh, Richard Finn from TC or 10 CC and Nick Mason uh, from Pink Floyd whoa so these guys got together and and did the soundtrack for a slasher film so I mean, I'm trying to sell this to the audience as best I can. I, I, you know, Arizona landscape, uh, you know, psychedelic music, uh, slasher killer on the loose. Um, it's it's such an interesting movie. And yes, Rob, it is certainly unique because it's hard to compare it to anything. It really is. Like I see on Letterboxd, a lot of people call it like a American Jalo film. But then once you kind of start seeing that in every review, you're like, well, who said this first? And then is the next review just pulling from that review, pulling from that review? But stylistically, I, I get that. But also, you know, I feel a lot of Hitchcock vibes from this as well, like or especially Psycho, maybe not as much like all of Hitchcock's oeuvre. But uh, <laughs> also saying both of those things is a little bit of a stretch because... This is a very unique film, and I would have liked to have seen more horror films from Camel, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, not just U2 music videos. Well, let's make a point to watch Demon Seed in the next six months, year. Yeah, maybe just we'll kind start of, putting we'll out some that. bonus episodes yeah. uh, in between our monthly releases. That could be fun. Um, it would be a great shame on you series. Like, shame on us for having not yes. seen the movie. Yes, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, Brainstorming on the podcast in ooh. front of you all. This is, this is what how we, we call authenticity. This is how Rob and I make the sausage. Yes, yes. We, it's honesty with our audience. It makes them feel like they're a part of it, right? And if you'd like to be a part of it, let us know what you'd like us to shame on ourselves 
for watching or not watching in the form of a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Now, Graham, you talked music. Yes. But this film has a lot to do with sound. Yes. Or wants you to think it's going to have a lot to do with sound. I wish, you know, if I were to critique a little bit about this, I wish that that was more of a Chekhov's gun in the movie than it ends up being. But, like, our main character, David Keith, he plays, uh, what, Paul, right? Paul White. Ooh. Wow, Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't think we ever get his last name. Well, the cops say it, I guess. But uh, he is a stereo equipment installer. And you, you remember when stereos used to cost, like, thousands of dollars? Like, only the super rich yuppies could have them? I... I I don't know. Now you can get a Bose speaker that sounds terrific, right? Uh, for 150 bucks or whatever. But um, and he's got this special power where he can and like touch his forehead, and he knows where the tweeters need to go, where the subwoofers need to go, in any room to give you that full uh Maxwell cassette tape. What? Sitting in a recliner, exploding sound. Yes, feeling. with your sunglasses and the yes. dog. And the, yes. and the tie flying behind you. Because, uh, you know, we all experience music sitting in a chair in our business suits. Um, yeah. But no, I found that a fun little piece of this is that, like, we're, we're living in these people's lives, but he's a stereo equipment salesman with a power. Yes, and... You know, you mentioned this that to me in a text, and I was like, okay, yeah, I want to dig into this. And um, I think if the movie was more straightforward, he would have used those abilities uh, to kill or would have made him a more precise yeah. kill. Almost like a sonar or something. Yeah. Triangulate and locate his victims. Because, you know, spoiler everyone, he is... He's the killer. David Keith is the killer. And I almost feel like knowing that while watching this movie is more valuable. Like, I think it tells a bigger story. And maybe that's something you could say about every movie where it's like a mystery until the end. But, um, yeah, I, I found it... First of all, I just... While talking about stereo equipment... Some of those stereos looked awesome, right? And Uh I forgot that, like, TVs used to be console TVs. They would be a cabinet, right? You would get wood grain. Stereos used to have, like, intricate designs because they weren't just a tool for listening. They were also, like, a piece of furniture, essentially. And Uh so you had to, you know, get something that fit your home aesthetic, if you could. And... Seeing some of these classic, like, really nice-looking stereos was pretty cool. I liked that, you know, for what it was. That's kind of where I was going with... So, he doesn't use this ability to help kill. I interpret it now as that he is lost in the world that you just described, Mm. right? And so, he has this ability that he's unable to communicate that with anybody else and you feel so alone and it's hard for him to be normal or 
be like everybody else because he's got this kind of special power which makes him uh, different than everybody and a little weird. And now it's made him gone, go completely mad and crazy. Sure. Because even in addition to like the humming sound power, like he's just an electronics whiz. Like, yeah. When we get the flashbacks, he can fix just about anything with a soldering yeah. iron. I think that, you know, I don't want to speak for you, Rob, or the audience, but, you know, I could say that I think, you know, a lot of people have met someone like that, that they're mm -hmm. so in, they're so, their head is so uh, pointed in the tech direction that they almost seem like they're not even there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They get and like super focused. And that's this character. 100. Yeah, that is so, so true because in a different world, he could have ended up not feeling so ostracized or whatever. Cause we don't actually get what made him, you know, go to the dark side or whatever. It just kind of develops throughout the storytelling of this movie. There are flashbacks to sure. that stuff in New York. Um, True. Which is yeah. One of the coolest deer hunting scenes. I mean, Let's be honest. Is that the coolest deer hunting scene ever, yes. aside from maybe the deer hunter? But also, we don't know why he did that. You know what I mean? Like, we don't actually know where he... Like, in the movie, that flashback of the deer hunting scene is, like, where he snaps. Uh -huh. But it's also where we see him snap. You know? Yeah. We don't know if that's something he's done before anyway, right? But... uh. But that, yes, to answer your question, that deer hunting scene is great. And on, on that talking point, Graham, I loved that this movie is, what, 1987, right? Yeah. And it flashes back to like 1977 or 75 or something like that. And a flashback to the 70s in an 80s movie is so much different than a flashback to the 70s in the late 90s even, or the yeah. 2000s, or the 2010s, you know? I remember watching that 70s show in 1999 or whatever, or 2002. And you look at that now and it's like, well, this doesn't really look like the 70s. But being able to do it so close, like within a decade, it's like, oh, they still like have these clothes in their closet. You know, they can, nothing's really changed. Yeah. Uh, you can get away with car stuff. Yeah. And, um, um, I think they used a different film stock mm, for yeah, the flashbacks. That, it definitely felt like it. It definitely um, felt like it. What it felt like to me is um, when the cinematographer, Robert Richardson, shot Django. And they mm. would go to a flashback of Django and Brunhilde uh, on the run. Yeah. And it cuts to this nasty film stock that is just dirty and as soon as you see it your heart just sinks mm. and it's almost kind of the same vibe i get from white of the eye yeah um also the hair was great 
<laughs> oh my god yes the david this Keith's has to mullet. be in the running his mullet has to be in the running for greatest mullets on film oh yeah and that mullet paired with his like turquoise jewelry necklace was phenomenal i mean i was yeah. gonna say it's crazy it's whatever but no it looked it looks great um graham i want to ask you about Kathy Moriarty's character, yes. Joan. I was just going to say, we. I, I was just going to say, we've been talking about everybody but her, and she's fantastic in this. Oh, my God. Like, so, what a character arc. You know, we see her when her and Paul are already together, and, you know, they love each other. We see this romance with them. They're, you know, she kind of loves when he does his little stereo trick. And we also get these flashbacks to her previous relationship and with Mike, right? Alan Rosenberg's character. And, and we kind of see like who she was and then who she became, obviously. Yeah. But the interesting thing is like you get these family dynamics, these relationship dynamics throughout that flashback and current day storytelling paired with like the fact that Paul is cheating on her with every rich housewife that wants a new stereo. And yeah. And it's so weird that he's like, oh, I don't know. I probably shouldn't until it's just like, well, I'm here. So I might as well. And it really he, is a red herring for him being the murderer for sure. And you could make the argument that this is kind of like exhibit some negative masculinity Sure. I think that's the point. Yeah. Because he's a serial killer. This, he's, he's also not, the bad guy. Yeah, he's the bad guy. You yeah. know, the guy who's murdering people. And I So and, it works. Well, let me ask you this, and I want to come back to Joan in a second, but like, do you think that the movie's trying to like play us, like play us for a fool to get on his side that he's like got these internal struggles, but really... Like, if we were to take a step back, we can be like, oh, no, he's, like, lying not just to himself but to these women so that he can eventually earn their trust and kill them. Yeah, there yeah. there are lies upon lies upon lies. And, no, that's such a great comment. Do I feel – yeah, I think that – I want to think that maybe Donald went into this movie and he's like, I got this crazy character. Who wrote this? It was him and uh, a person named China. China Kong, yeah. And apparently this is based off a novel, which I, I, okay. I'm going to have to read. Mr. White, gotcha. See, yeah. I should have done my research, but um, I, I think he was just captured by, could I make the audience roll with a serial killer sort of similar to what was done one year previous in uh henry portrait of a serial killer mm, gotcha yeah well which speaking of i just watched cliffhanger again uh, of henry uh it, it's a another podcast um uh but i feel like when we get the character of joan like picking up not picking up necessarily that he's the person killing anyone but that he's just like a dirty dog and cheating on her that she's just like i 
you know, Mike wasn't great, but he wasn't cheating on me. And he wasn't like putting me in this like weird housewife role where like I'm not on adventures anymore. You know, like when she was with Mike in the flashback, they're like hitchhiking or driving cross country. They're trying to make it big. They want to get to California or whatever. And she was like, to me, it feels like she was living. She was like, I'm living life to the fullest. And now she's just like got everything she could want, bored at home. And my husband is unfaithful. Like, well, this, where's the adventure? Yeah. The adventure comes when she starts, like, you know, letting the air out of his tires. and The adventure him. comes in one shot in the film that always makes me laugh. It takes me out just a little bit, but it's just so awesome. When she does the Rambo dive into the water yes. as the explosion goes. I mean, it's it's like... It's a Rambo dive yeah, into really water is. to take cover. Yeah. And she's like, you know, an unassuming normal person that yeah. goes into Rambo dive like that. Yeah, that whole chase scene leading up to that is great. You know, mm-hmm. she's going through that abandoned mine. Very Rambo as well. Um, yes. But I do want to talk about when she meets Mike in the present day where he's a mechanic. That scene is terrific. Yeah. Mike just like coming to terms with how he got here, how he lost the love of his life, how how they why they separated, and then being able to just sit on the furniture outside of this like dirty mechanic shop and like the just juxtaposition of like who she's become, who he's become, but like they're still able to just communicate like how they were in the past and she's like wearing a fur coat you know and he's all dirty and you're just like wow because of like one choice these are the spots that we are at in our life now and that could have been in any film it did not have to even be in white of the eye but it makes the i think that is the scene that makes this movie more than your standard like hack and slash sort of horror film. It's an art film. Yeah. And that being said, talking about white of the eye, well, what does that mean? It's it's a specific way in which the killer um, takes out his victims, Mm -hmm. um, which is horrifying. Uh, I don't want to give too much of it away if you haven't seen it, but it involves a mirror where you can see the cover of the movie on Letterboxd. And yeah. It gives you a close idea. So go look it up, everyone. And just, and just watch the film. I just, you know, if you're into psychedelic or progressive rock, or if you're into kind of slow burn movies, if you love the desert, um, you know, pay a visit to your local brewery, look, roll a tight one, mm-hmm. and just sit back and kind of groove with this one. Yeah, that's true. It It is... Very groovy, but Graham, I got to ask you, I talked about one of my favorite scenes. We both agree that the deer hunting scene is one of our favorites, but is there any scenes that we haven't discussed that really jumped out to you? Well, we met, you mentioned the chase scene a little bit um, at the end uh, where he's chasing his wife uh-huh. and um, his face makeup. Yeah, it's like kabuki almost. It's supposed to be that 
the north is the sun, the something, yeah. the south is this, the whatever he was into. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is something that here's what I'll say. In my reality, that would have been uh on the poster, that would have been as that painted face would have been as famous as Michael Myers mask or Freddie's face or the hockey mask that Jason yeah. wears yeah. like that should have been iconic. And it really could have, uh, I, I think that David Keith, uh, does an excellent job in this. We had two great serial killers back to back in 86, Michael Rooker and, uh, Henry Pritchard of a serial killer. And then, um, David Keith and see, I have to keep on looking at the computer and say David Keith, because my brain Wants yes. to say Keith David. Yeah. We love them both here. But today we're talking about uh, David Keith. Maybe someday we'll talk about Keith David. Well, Keith David is in the sequel to Tales from the Hood. So. Ah, okay. Well, yes. We'll, we'll we'll have to come around or come back to that. Yeah. We'll do a another series of uh, sequels, right? Yes, that'd be well, awesome. Also, Keith David, as we spoke last time, was in Nope. So, yes, um, he had a terrific role. But uh, we're not talking about Keith David. We're talking about David Keith. One thing I also wanted to bring to your attention, Graham, that I, you know, call it a critique. Call it maybe we should just call it something I wish would have had more of a presence in the movie. Uh huh. But everything that did have to do with folklore. Yeah. Like part of this movie is really good because they just give you a taste of it, but I don't think it's explained enough. Like the character of Mike, who's part Native American, talks about the white of the eye tale or story that used to be told to people that are in his ancestry, but they don't really go into too much detail about it. It's like something you see before you die, which is plays hand in hand with aspects of this movie without going into too much detail. But they don't really explain to you what the story is. And then also, when we talk about David Keith, his character, like you're saying, the sun, the north, all of that sort of stuff, like he's into something... Yeah. But we never really get it fleshed out. And I would love, like, I don't think this movie needs a remake, but if this were to be redone or expanded upon or director's cut edition or something, those are aspects I would love to have seen more of. Sure. I mean, you know, this is this movie is the equivalent of a Judas Priest record. You're going to have to do your research or spin it backwards yep. to kind of get the full message. And and this is a a creator and artist that's like, okay, you're going to have to work extra to to kind of get what's going on in this film. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot to ask of an audience, but I think that this one is well Regardless if you like it or or you hate it, I don't think you'll forget it anytime soon. No, not at all. And you know what? Just go watch it, everyone. At the moment, it's free on Tubi. So yeah, might as well take it while you can because otherwise, you know, it's worth paying for as well. I'm not going to say it, but if you're <laughs> if you're on the fence, there's a way you can watch it and test the water and dip your toe in the tweeter. As it were. Yeah, it's it's a fun one. Yeah. Well, Graham, 
what do you say? Should we uh, should we try and figure out what we're going to watch next time? Sure. I got four bus tickets. Whoa. Because we so, finally went to Arizona where bus tickets are plenty. Yes. Because everyone's trying to get out of there because they watched <laughs> uh, White of the Eye. Yeah. So it's like a mass exodus. Um, no, we still have our ticket for Portland, Oregon. Okay. And then I picked up a ticket to Lawrence, Kansas. Ooh. I picked up a ticket to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. And I picked up a ticket to Greenwich Village, Manhattan, New York City. Whoa. Okay. Well, I'm very much intrigued with a lot of these. I'm going to whittle it down to Lawrence, Kansas, or Greenwich Village, Manhattan. Okay. Hmm. Again, we'll get to these eventually sometime. Yeah. But what's, what's next on the chopping block? Well, you know what? KU just won a basketball game today. Yes. Let's go with Lawrence, Kansas. Okay, so um, we will be watching and discussing and uh, showing our appreciation for the 1962 movie Carnival of Souls. Ooh. Um, which was filmed uh, about 85% in Lawrence, Kansas. There is a carnival that was shot in Salt Lake. Um, but for the most part, uh, it was shot in Lawrence, Kansas. That's where we went to school. And so we're sort of going back to school. We're going back to the homeland that is Kansas. So buckle up. Well, I'm ready for it, Graham. Uh, and thank you for providing another bus ticket. I, one of these days I'll pay you back. (laughs) Yeah. Have you seen this one? No, never seen Carnival of Souls. Okay, so you're not, you can't be a Jayhawk until you've seen it. So if okay. you're a fan out there of the Jayhawks, and if you're not, watch it anyway, because it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. Well, everyone, this has been another exciting episode of Pumpkin Spice Podcast. If you'd like to support us, check out the links in the show notes or give us one of them five star reviews I've oh so subtly hinted at earlier in this episode. Graham, I will see you next time. All right, take it easy, y'all. <laughs>